The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So picking up in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately the discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all had denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceived that power has gone out from me. And when the woman had... who. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this answer, hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep. For she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something be given to her to eat. And the parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Father, we ask that as we look at Jesus and these two miraculous stories tonight, that you would help us to not only love Jesus together, but experience a special presence of his blessing upon us. That we who are desperate might come to love him more. In his name we pray. Amen. as you're reading through this with me, I'm sure you are picking up on the desperate tone of the passage. Desperation is an incredibly common experience. We've all felt desperate. We all know what it's like to be in those moments of our lives where we wish there was an ejection seat where we could just pull the handles and eject right out and get out of the problems and the pressing strain of life. There are some things that we uh, want to be, you know, we want, they feel desperate and we want to be ejected out of life from, that are kind of like, um, I made a dumb mistake and I want to get out of this because this is really bad. <laughs> you know, like um, if 
you've talked to me long, you know that I once took a hike up Mount Lafayette <laughs> the first week of November. So uh, for those who are not familiar, Mount Lafayette is one of the highest peaks in the White Mountains. And November, while it might not be snow on the ground at this level, there is not only snow, but there is ice, like serious ice on the top of the mountains. And I uh, thought, you know what, I'm just going to, having done no hiking preparation, um, just to go and be alone with God, I'm going to go hike Mount Lafayette. <laughs> and I proceeded to crawl my way up. I did not have winter gloves. I had woolen socks that I took for my hands. <laughs> I didn't have the right water bottles because halfway up I realized that my water was frozen shut. <laughs> and like uh, Sam and Frodo climbing up Mount Doom, I made my way up to the top of this mountain. And so... I definitely was feeling desperate um, <laughs> on the top of this mountain, but I was feeling desperate because I was dumb and I was experiencing the rewards of my own stupidity. What we are talking about though is a desperation that is the kind of desperation that you have had no control over, that has had uh, seemingly picked you uh, in the lottery of life to come and sit on your life. It is a de- desperation that seems to uh, not only have been uninvited, but is the type of guest that will not leave when asked to leave. It is a type of desperation that is uh, that kind of comes with suffering, comes with pain, comes with trial. It is the stuff of life that is outside of our control. That is a type of desperation, not the desperation of being on Mount Lafayette on November 4th, but the type of suffering that comes when you get the phone call um, that changes your life forever. The kind of... Uh, desperation that is so controlling that it seems like there is nothing that you can do to change it. And it is through this story we're getting introduced to that. We are seeing here, we're going to start looking in a moment, we're going to start looking at these two characters that introduce us to desperation. And I think the reason, you know, I always kind of ask these questions, you know, why did Luke put this story here? Like, as Luke is collecting all these stories about Jesus' life, and telling us about who he is, why did Luke put this story here? And I think, I think the reason these, this story about these two people is right here is because we have been seeing up to this point that Jesus is a powerful teacher. He teaches with the sort of authority that all of us and the best preachers in the world only dream of having. I mean, when you're the son of God, you tend to have that type of power. But He's also been doing miracles and healings that even the most charismatic among us can only dream of performing, right? He is raising people from the dead. He is healing paralytics, um, sight unseen. He is uh, providing food for the masses from a mere fish and loaves. He is doing things that are rather incredible. And there is a sense that you could have of, okay, Jesus can handle these sort of things, these sort of he can calm the storm. He can take care of this demoniac. He can do these you know, amazing and profound things. But here's the thing. My life isn't really defined by amazing and profound things of like, I've got leprosy or um, I'm possessed by a thousand demons. Um, the reality is that my life is filled with deep, heavy, weighty things that don't seem to be going anywhere and they're never changing. And this Jesus as charismatic and as powerful as he seems, can he handle these things? Can he handle the realities of life? Can he handle 
the things that cause us to be desperate. And so I think as we are beginning to look at these two people in the background of our mind, we have to be asking, I think the sort of question that Luke wants us to ask at this point, can Jesus handle it? Can Jesus handle our problems? And I think as we're gonna be looking at them, we're gonna be looking at desperation. We'll be looking at desperation in these people. And we're gonna see that Jesus interacts in such a way that he redefines all the categories. Excuse me, we have this new microphone and it really picks up on all this stuff. Looking at Jesus, engaging their desperation. And as we walk through the story, we're gonna be learning about how Jesus answers the question about desperation. So what we're going to be doing is we're just going to be looking at this story in three parts. We're going to be looking at the desperate yearning, we're going to be looking at the desperate waiting, and then we're going to be looking at the desperate answer. So if you would walk through the story with me with all of the categories in your mind as I'm talking about desperation, whatever's coming to your mind, I feel desperate about this, carry those in your back pocket as we walk through this story and let's pick up first part of the story, the desperate yearning, verse 40. And because we love God's word and this is the only infallible part of the sermon, I'm gonna read it again, okay? Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd, see he's already gathered the crowd, people are responding to him, the crowd welcomed him and they were all waiting for him. They're waiting for Jesus. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him, please, he implored him, come to my house. For he had an only daughter, who was about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe the hem of his garment. And immediately the discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who is it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. What do you want? Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people, why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So we are looking at the desperate yearning in this passage. And man, do we see people who are yearning in desperation. We, we see not only the crowd welcoming Jesus because they love every, all the good things that they've seen about him, but amidst this huge crowd of people, who knows how big it is? I mean, you can imagine at least 500 to 1,000 people greeting Jesus as he's landing in this boat. They are greeting him, and yet we zero this story down real fast because the yearning that they have, their desperate yearning, is palpable. We are zeroing in first on Jairus. And Jairus would have been one of the most important people in the town. He was a synagogue leader, probably, if not the mayor of the town, he would have been on his council. He would have been one of the top guys and he would have had a substantial power and weight in the city. And what is going on in his life here? His daughter, 
of 12 years old. So in this, t- in this time and culture, 12-year-old daughter, right on the verge of being of marriageable age. She is right on the verge of being in the prime of life. She is right on the verge of blossoming into this beautiful young woman that he will hopefully marry off and gain a son-in-law. And hopefully the family will continue. His hopes and dreams are on the line. And she is about to die. His only daughter. And by the way, just as a note, it's interesting to me that this is not the only child family situation that Jesus has engaged with, right? He has healed regularly, and Luke draws our attention regularly to the fact that the only son, remember the, the, the widow of Nain, her only son had died. Later, a, a father, his only son, possessed by a demon, throwing himself in the fire, will be healed. Only children. I think the reason, that's why, the reason they're drawing us our attention to that is because with these people, there is no plan B. There is, there is no backup plan. There is nothing else to rely on. If she dies, all dreams, all hopes of the future, all of his desires and plans for Thanksgiving dinner and having people around the table and sitting around together, enjoying the goodness of life, it all crashes down in a piling, burning heap. This is his most desperate hour. And so he comes to Jesus. He comes amidst all of this pressure behind him. You can almost imagine him assessing the situation with his daughter. Here she is dying. And he gets wind, hey, Jesus has arrived. He knows who Jesus is. At this point, at this point in Jesus' life and in the story, uh, everybody knows who Jesus is. Everybody knows what he can do. And probably they've heard a little bit about what he's teaching. And so he runs. I mean, you can imagine him sprinting out of his daughter's bedroom, sprinting to the boat, falling down this huge crowd of, you know, how many people? Jesus, imploring him, Jesus, please come, please come and help our situation. And so, because Jesus loves broken people, because Jesus loves to respond to desperate situations, he responds and says that Jesus goes with him. But amidst Jesus going with him, he has this crowd that is pressing in around him. So, Pressing in, the word there, pressing in, sounds kind of like, I mean, when I read that, I'm kind of thinking like a little like claustrophobic, you know, like have you ever been in New York City or like, I guess Boston, and you like get in the tube and like there's like a lot of people and you're like all kind of like crunching together. The word that's used here is actually more along the lines of like pressing in. So it's like, you know, I guess it's like New Year's Day or New Year's Eve, like in New York City, Times Square, like people are like all crushed in together. In my mind, I had like the, you know, um, I don't imagine anybody here has been to Mardi Gras, but <laughs> had that Mardi Gras sun, just like a huge, I mean, a massive fanatic crowd that are just like pressing in on Jesus, crushing in on him, crushing in because there's so many people eager to be around him. He is the big man on campus. Everybody's eager to get to know him, to see him. It is, it is claustrophobic. It is loud. It is chaotic. And amidst all of this, so you have this huge crowd pressing in on Jesus. You have the spectacle of one of the top dogs in the city coming in, begging him for help. And amidst all of this going on, we get these several verses here, this paragraph describing this woman's situation and Jesus' pause for her desperate yearning. Because see, Jairus is not the only one who has a desperate situation. Her desperate situation has been much more prolonged. It has been much more segregating. So her situation, who is this woman? Don't know. 
I don't know who, who she was, uh, her name at least. I always find it a bit unfortunate we don't have her name. But what we do have about her is a description that is heartbreaking because she has had this discharge of blood probably, probably what was going on is probably some like uterine hemorrhage, you know, basically just a sort of like hemorrhage that just would not, would not stop. And according to Old Testament cleanliness laws, any sort of blood, regardless man or woman, any sort of blood made you unclean and nobody could touch you. And so if you were like perpetually bleeding, what that meant is that nobody was touching you. Nobody was being near you. You were ostracized. All of your hopes or dreams, just like Jairus, all of her hopes or dreams had long since died. She was not allowed to be in the public presence of God's people. So she was not allowed to worship with other people. She was alone. And not only that, but Luke tells us that she was, she, um, had spent all her living on physicians and could not be healed by anyone. Luke kind of puts it slightly lightly. Mark tells us that um, she was worse off. So she was worse off financially, destitute financially. She had given all of her hopes and dreams and trying to figure this whole situation out to the physicians. Not only was she financially destitute, but there was no, there was no healing for her. So at the time, they would have probably given some sort of like... Um, some sort of like wine mixture with like potatoes. I'm not sure why, but they wine and potatoes and they mixed it. I'm not sure how they would have applied it, but it just, you know, wine because it would have clean, uh, been really the only sort of like, you know, consistent alcohol they would have had to clean things. Nothing worked. She is alone and desperate and destitute. And so she hears about Jesus as well. Huge crowd. She takes the risk. I can make other people, I could, I could transgress cultural taboos, but I must, I must get to Jesus and at least just, I don't want to get in, I don't want to get into like an interaction. I don't want him to draw attention to me. I just want to touch the hem of his robe, touch and go, touch and go, get a, get a healing, get a, get a drive-by healing nonetheless. I'm not sure if she's like superstitious. Some people are questioning whether she's superstitious because, you know, here's the clothes of Jesus. You know, somehow they're more holy than the rest of our clothes. Um, and if you just touch the clothes of a holy teacher, that will heal you. I'm not sure if that's what's going on or if she just doesn't want to. This is clearly like a very private um, situation for her. I'm not sure if she wants to draw attention to it. Regardless, there's a sense where she doesn't want to draw attention, just wants to get, get the healing and move on. And so, what I think we see here with her is a situation that we often find in our own lives. I th- what my experience is that when, there are, when we walk through desperately difficult suffering, it ends up becoming a bit of a defining mark of us, right? What it, what it does for us, what pain does in our own lives is it causes us to look inward and be very focused on the difficulty and the pain of our own realities. Um, Maybe it is the loss of a loved one. Maybe it is infertility. Maybe it is uh, a perpetual uh, ailment or disability. But the pain of life's broken dreams and the physical anguish tends to draw our attention inward. It also works with the community of people around us. So just as this woman... She, she was ostracized. She was marked. She had kind of like a scarlet letter pressed on her. Everybody knew who she was, and they knew what her situation was, what was going on. And I think what happens with our, with our friends, our family, 
we see people suffering or we see people in pain and we, it kind of gets a bit awkward, doesn't it? Like, you don't know what to do. Like, do I bring it up? Do I not? Do I ask about it? Do I not? Do I say something to try to encourage them? Or are they going to get angry and not talk to me again? Uh, you know, I've seen this um, with some friends of ours um, at another church where uh, their son had this very, very bizarre, uh, very bizarre sort of like uh, physical uh, health condition where he got, you know, fevers every three weeks and just very physically fatigued. And it wasn't just kind of like, oh, it like came and went. It like started at like a year and a half old. And, you know, it's been going on for five years or something like that. It's just been going on for a long time. And, you know, it's just weird where people just begin to kind of like pull back. Like they, they don't know how to interact with the suffering. They don't know how to interact with what's going on. It just becomes a bit awkward. It becomes a, the suffering, the trial, the desperate yearning in this woman's life, desperate yearning in people's lives, becomes a bit of a defining mark. And uh, what I find fascinating here is that amidst the whole crowd, Jesus, Jesus notices when she touches him. I mean, you pick up on this. This woman who had been alone, suddenly in the midst of this crowd, is not alone. Not because she's in the crowd, but because... Jesus notices her. So you notice where, who has touched me, verse 45, when all denied it, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, why would all deny it? It's like, you got everybody around him, like Jesus is calling him out, like, oh, I, I wasn't the one kind of rubbing shoulders with Jesus. I don't know, I'm not sure why. <clears throat> but Jesus calls, who is it that has touched me? And Peter, reflecting all of our thinking, you know, Peter tends to be the, uh, the voice of the reader most often. Jesus, you're in a crowd, what are you talking about? <laughs> Everybody's touching you. What's the deal? <laughs> like, but what Jesus has noticed is that somebody has not just touched him because he's popular. Somebody has, has reached out and is a touch of faith. They have reached out to Jesus because they need, they need Jesus specifically. They need Jesus intentionally. They want something that only Jesus has, and they're coming in faith that Jesus can provide for them. And I think Amidst this woman's defining suffer, suffering, Jesus notices her because Jesus notices faith. Jesus notices when people reach out to him. Jesus notices when people are in desperate need and they are looking to him for help. So she's healed, which is a bit of kind of like a no-brainer. But the question that I've come away with is asking is why, why, did, Jesus, why did Jesus call her out? Because if, if Jesus wants her healed... It's kind of like if the power's gone out from him, he knows the power's gone out, knows that somebody's been healed, somebody's been, uh, somebody in faith has looked to him. Why does Jesus, why does Jesus intentionally draw her out? Why does Jesus intentionally call her to account? And I think, I think what we see here is that Jesus will not, Jesus will not let her just kind of get a drive-by healing. Jesus will not just let her get uh, kind of like a touch and go. Jesus wants more than just a physical healing for this woman. He wants to draw her out. If she's been superstitious about touching his, his, the hem of his robes, he wants her to see that it's not just some sort of magic that happens. It's not um, something that you just get healed and move on. Jesus wants to draw her attention that you get more than you bargain for with Jesus. He wants her restored. Not just restored physically. He wants, he wants to draw her attention that faith in him restores her into a right relationship with God, restores her to the community. She has, as he says here, 
verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you. You have been saved. You are not just made well, kind of like pat you on the back, we'll see you the next doctor's visit. You have been transitioned into a totally different state. You are now at a condition of being at peace with God. You bargained, you wanted just to be healed. But with Jesus, you get more than you bargained for. And you get and you give more than you intend to when you come to Jesus. When, G- when you go to Jesus, he will not just let you get some sort of private healing and move on. He wants you restored and he will give you not merely just physical healing, that's just what that God wants to heal, but he will heal your entire condition so that you're not just physically healed because this woman will eventually die. She will, because of her faith, live with God forever. She has been changed from the inside out. Her yearning, her desperate yearning has been met with this explosive and life upside downing, if that's a word, can I do that? Upside downing, changing, uh, a life changing response to her faith because her faith in Jesus, because of who she's trusting in, changes everything about her desperate situation. And so I wonder, I wonder for you, what is it that you are yearning for? And maybe yearning is maybe, maybe that's a bit of like a literary term. I don't know. I like the word. What are you, what are you, what are you desperately in need of? What, when you look at your life, what, what is it just that, that just drives you nuts that never changes? What is it that you just wish would just stop or go away? What, what is it that you wish that you did not have to wait on anymore? You see, in this situation, we see Jesus eager to respond, eager to give power, eager to give peace, because he cares about this woman personally amidst this huge crowd. And right now, Jesus cares more about you personally than you could possibly understand. He cares about the desperate situations in your life. He cares and is eager to respond to faith with power. But that does not mean that Jesus responds on your own timeline. Jesus does not respond in a drive up to the, to the window and get your order kind of way. Jesus responds in a way that draws your attention to depending on him for power and not the power. Jesus wants you to wait for him, and that's what we're going to be seeing here. We're going to be Picking up in the story, so we've been looking at desperate yearning, the, the desperate yearning for God. We've seen how Jairus had this situation going on that drove him to Jesus. We've seen this woman, how she's had this yearning to come to Jesus. And so amidst this whole interaction, we're going to look next at the desperate waiting. We're going to pick up at verse 49. When he was still speaking, so this is Jesus. When he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is, is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this answer, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. So we have, we have in this whole situation, you remember this whole thing started because Jairus came up to Jesus and this huge crowd, you know, imagine the 
Boston Transit crowd sitting around, you know, crunched in around Jesus. Jesus is going to Jairus' house, and this woman causes this interruption, right? Jairus has a desperate need. Jesus has a solution. Jesus is on his way to provide the, pro- provide the solution, and here is this massive interruption because here, in the midst of all this interaction with this woman where Jesus is restoring her, in the midst of all this interaction, this man's daughter, his only daughter, dies. And you can imagine, you can imagine, you can imagine what's going on. Here is Jairus sitting next to this whole situation, and you can, you can just imagine what he's thinking. Um, this can wait. My daughter is, is dying. We have a, 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 a countdown on the amount of breaths that she has left, and this woman seems to be breathing just fine. Why are we waiting? Why are we sitting here and waiting on this situation to be resolved? This can wait till later. And I think that we are intended to think of this whole contrast between them because Jesus calls this woman who's now been restored, daughter. We have Jairus' daughter and now this woman who's been restored, now a daughter of Jesus. Not only that, but her suffering, the woman with the blood, her situation has been going on for 12 years. She's been suffering for 12 years. And this daughter is, uh, coincidentally, 12 years old. Her suffering has just started in the last what, day or two, week. I don't know how long. This woman's been suffering for 12 years. They are intended to draw our attention to the fact that there is some difference here. This daughter is about to die. This woman is not immediately to die. What is going on? See, this girl dies his world comes crashing in. We do not like, like Jairus, we do not like sitting and waiting as other things happen, right? Just last night, we were at a ball game in our neighborhood, and uh, we go to the concession stand. They immediately have popcorn for us, and we also purchased a thing of fries, and I do not know where these fries came from. They had to have been imported from Alaska, frozen by Eskimos, and delivered you know, on the backs of elves on a sled before they got there, and then defrosted, and then cooked, and after 30 minutes of waiting, we finally got our fries. I mean, it just took forever to get what seemed like, we just wanted, we just wanted fries. Two bucks, I wanted fries. I, in the back of my mind, was thinking, this is a perfect illustration for why I hate waiting. You know, <laughs> here I am preaching on waiting, and this story happens on my lap about waiting. We hate those, and those are sort of trivial, right? We hate waiting on those, but more, maybe more desperate situations, we hate sitting in the waiting room, waiting to know what's been going on in the surgery, right? We hate waiting to hear the news of what's been going on with the counseling situation. We hate waiting for people to change. We don't like things not being solved quickly. You know, you think of the, the more desperate situations in your life which draws us into the story, the diagnosis that won't go away, the disease that won't go away, the uh, family relationships that are permanently changed and won't go away. That is a type of waiting that we see here because here Jairus' daughter dies in the waiting. And you have to ask the question, is this an effectively divine malpractice? Because here, Jesus should have been going to raise his daughter from the dead, or 
going to raise, uh, heal this daughter who was about to die. And this woman with the blood, she could have waited, you know? Is this divine, is this divine malpractice? And the reason that we're looking at this in, des- in, the, in the category of desperate waiting is because of what Jesus says here in verse 50. Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe. She will be well. You see, Jesus, Jesus ignores the news and he looks at Jairus and he says, trust me, don't worry, there's no need to hurry. You see, we, we expect God to work on our expectations of time. We expect God to work on our timetables. We love God to work on our expectation of when things should be resolved and how they should be resolved and how quickly they should be resolved. But if you have had any interactions with people of different cultures, you know that expectations of time are a bit relative, right? <laughs> Some people in different countries, um, I'll see you at three o'clock means I will see you sometime in the afternoon, hopefully before the sun goes down. If you say that in America, depending on which American you're talking to, it better be three o'clock and not a minute later. Um, and in some families, I won't name any families in particular, if it's not 30 minutes early, you're late. There, there are different expectations of time, but God's timing on our lives will always confound us. God's timing in our lives will always frustrate our expectations because we always want God to work according to what is most convenient and most uh, it seems best to us. We think that we know how to run our lives better than God. Just like Jairus thinking, sitting here, standing on the sidelines, watching the situation, interrupting the healing that's going to keep his daughter from dying, we think Jesus getting there before the death is going to be better. We think Jesus fixing the situation before the catastrophe is better. But Jesus looks at Jairus and he says, literally, do not be afraid, believe. Jesus is saying to him, because I love you, I have not hurried. I know what I'm doing. I know what's going on. In fact, I know more about what's going on than you do. The reality is that our suffering, our suffering is a specific moment in our lives where we are drawn to realize that God is doing 10,000 things in our lives, but we are only seeing five, maybe. At every moment in your life, every moment in the life of the last week, no matter what, it, happy, sad, no matter what's going, ha- going on this afternoon, no matter what's going to happen tomorrow, God is always at every moment in your life doing 10,000 things that you are absolutely and completely blind to. You, by his grace, are able to see maybe a half dozen. Maybe able to see, you know what, there's 10,000 things going on, but I can see that I am still a Christian. Sometimes people ask, How are you how's your day going? Well, it's nine o'clock and I'm still a Christian. That's one of the 10,000 things that God's doing in my life today. God is doing 10,000 things in your life and yet you are able to see a window, see a small picture into what he is doing because God knows more facts about what's going on in your life than you do. God knows more about what's going on in your situation, the, the desperate waiting, the desperate need, whatever it is going on for you, God, in fact, knows not only about that situation, but he knows 10,000 things of what he intends to do with that in your life. He knows about 10,000 things are going on around that situation in your life. He knows your life so thoroughly that he is unhurried. He is unhurried by the panic that you feel about this situation. That does not mean that he doesn't care. You got me, right? He cares. I would like to know that there is a God in the universe 
that is not driven by my panic because, man, he would be frantic all the time. I'm going from panic to, to happiness on a five-minute basis. God is not driven by, his, by your panic because he loves you. He knows more about what's going on. He knows the full story. He knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows that there is a greater story. There is a greater grace. There is a greater glory happening in Jairus' family and his life that he is about to do than Jairus does. Though Jairus is crushed, crushed by the situation. And who could blame him? But Jesus knows more. Jesus knows more about what's going on. And right now, in your life, is God delaying? Is God delaying in a way that makes you want to give up? Is God delaying something in your life? And you are about to throw in the towel and just say, you know what? If that's the way God's going to be, I don't need him. I don't want this. I'm out. Is God delaying in a way that you, like Jairus, are crushed by your reality? I think, I think it's an honest question to ask, it's, and we need to think about it because God's invitation for that is not, oh, you should feel really bad about that. You need to repent, sure. But we're invited to trust. You see how Jesus is saying, do not fear. Even though your world is crashing down, even though all your dreams are dying in front of you. Do not fear. Do not fear. Believe, believe in me. And I think another way that this, sorry, another way that this changes our, our life together as a community is, I don't know if you guys have ever had this thought, maybe it's just me and I'm just confessing from the pulpit here, but I've occasionally thought, why is so-and-so's life such a mess, don't they know all they need to do is just do this and then things will be okay? Don't they know like how to change things? What is the problem? Why don't they just stop doing this? Why is whatever such a big deal? And I think because God is so patient in, in our waiting, because God's design is so perfect in our lives, because even the desperately tragic situations are a part of his story of grace in our lives because God is not panicked by our need. I think we need to, in looking and assessing and living together, we need to be taking the divine perspective of of change in other people's lives. Whatever issue it is that you're seeing in somebody's life, they're doing this, and if they just stop doing that, everything would be put back in place. Well, you know what? I think God has a hand on what's going on. He has a handle on what's how, how to change people. And if you were to work alongside what God is doing, while something's going on in this theater of their world, change is happening in the 10,000 other areas of their life that God is intending to change that would be God's design of change in their life. Does that make sense? Everybody good? I just, I, for me, that has been seeing that God has a better handle on how people are changing and how to handle their desperate need. It has made life together in the, in the body of Christ, I think, a little bit more grace-filled. So we have what's been going on, right? We have the desperate yearning 
These two individuals that raise to the forefront our desperate situation, they lead us into the question, the desperate waiting, God, why are you, why are you delaying? What is going on here? Why is, why is the problem not being fixed? And so we come to the final moment of a story, the desperate answer. Picking up in verse 51, so Jesus has just said, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with them except Peter and John and James the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. You see, just as this woman before got more than she bargained for, Jairus has gotten more than he bargained for. He was asking Jesus in his desperate need, I need a healing. What he got was a resurrection. He got more than he bargained for with Jesus. And so we can imagine the situation here. Jesus is walking in amidst this whole crowd. What's going on? This girl has just died. At the time in the culture, they would have had, not only would they have people who were legitimately mourning, but they would have had professional mourners. This, because this man is important, everybody's immediately in the house. They are just, you know, rending their clothes. They're crying. They're singing uh, songs of sadness. They are expressing the, the deep inappropriate grief to this girl dying. And Jesus, unhurried, but intentionally loving this man and his family, walks up to the door, takes Peter and James and John, so these are kind of like the inner circle, with the parents, so now they've got him and five other people, so six witnesses, they walk into the room. You can imagine, I mean, it was a room, you know, if it was a 12-year-old girl's room today, I don't know if there'd be a Taylor Swift poster on the wall, but you know, you got the walls, you got the room, very intentionally, this girl's place of, of where she lives, and he walks in, and you can just imagine the situation. Walks in, I assume having died on a bed, he sits down. Maybe sits next to her body and takes her by the hand. And he says, child, arise. Now, that might just read very quickly here. But, you can, but the other versions of this story kind of give us a little bit of some light in the situation. He sits down. And when he says child, he's using probably originally um, in the native tongue of the day, Aramaic, he would have said something along the lines of little girl, and maybe we could just translate that to say honey. You know, it was a bit of like an affectionate dear term. Honey. Sits down next to her on the bed, takes up her hand. Honey, it's time to get up. Just like waking somebody from a nap. With Jesus Death is but just waking up from a nap. He sits down, takes her hand, just like a parent. All right, it's time to get up from the nap. Do you see? What a profound. With Jesus, death, it's just as simple as overcoming, getting up from a groggy nap. It's time to get up, give her some food, get her back to normal life. You see, if Jesus has you by the hand, 
death itself is just nothing but sleep. It's just like waking up. And here we have, here we have this situation. Death is the most desperate situation, is it not? If you've lost somebody to death, if you've lost a child to death, lost a friend to death, Jesus' answer is that he himself has the power as a perfect parent to take you by the hand. It's time to get up from a nap. Just pulls you right out of the nap. Jesus steps in and he takes by the hand this girl as a perfect parent. You know, we have all failed as parents, but Jesus never fails. And Jesus, holding this girl's hand, raises her from the dead, just like waking her from a nap. But Jesus will lose another hand someday. Jesus will hold on for all eternity. He has held on to the hand of his father and has loved his father and known the great love of his father for all eternity and has held his father's hand for all eternity without separation or breaking or any sort of problem, no pain. Jesus has held the hand of his father, and yet, as we just read in Psalm 22, Jesus will walk up to the hill and lose the hand of his father so that you, having received the pure hand of grace in Jesus because he took the crushing hand of judgment in your place, Jesus will hold you for all eternity with perfect and unending strength and power. Because he lost the hand of his father, he can hold your hand for all eternity, for all of life, for all of your desperate need, for all the things that don't seem to fix or change. He will hold your hand in absolute strength and never, never, never let you go. And someday, he will take your hand, he will take your hand and as from a nap, he will pull you right out of the ground. He will pull you back into life. What are the situations in your life that you, you are absolutely, if you are honest, you are gut-wrenchingly afraid of? What are the situations in your life? What is it that you feel like define your life in such desperate need, such desperate situation that you just feel like there's no way of ever finding a solution? Do you feel like, are you afraid of your dreams dying? Do you feel like you will never change? There is that quirk or that persistent sin that does not seem to go away. Do you fear that your, never, your marriage will never change? Do you fear that you will never get married? Do you fear that this is it? Do you feel like the depression will never leave? Do you feel like death is this impending dark cloud coming upon you? When you hold Jesus' hand, if death is nothing but sleep, Jesus' hand can answer all your desperate need. He can answer all the needs in your life. He comes and sees and gives you power. He knows what you need. He knows the desperate situation you're in. He knows how to give grace because he himself is weak. Second Corinthians 3, 4, he was crucified. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. If you don't feel like you're weak, you might not be a Christian. Be a Christian is to be weak. For we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. We live and we 
engage the desperate situations of our lives. We find power for the desperate situations in our lives because Jesus, as he lost the hand of his father on the cross, died in weakness and now reigns and lives in eternal power, gives you power by his eternal hand in yours. He gives you power for all the areas of life that are afraid, daunting, and fearful. Everything in your life, everything, he gives power because he himself was weak for you. What, what is it? What, where, where is the desperation in your life? He can handle it. He can handle your needs. He can handle the pain. He can handle the, the problems. He can handle the desperate situation because you see, desperate people, desperate people, desperate people find what they need in Jesus. Desperate people like Jairus and this woman, desperate people like you and me, desperate people find what they need in Jesus because desperate people go to Jesus for help. Desperate people find the grace, find the help, find the power. They find what they need. They find all of their expectations are changed. They find the patience and the waiting. They find the life in Christ himself. They find, desperate people find what they need in Jesus. Desperate people go to Jesus for all their needs because Jesus, Jesus can handle it. Jesus can handle all the desperation in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus can handle our need. And we thank you that desperate people like us can come to you, can come to you and find what we need. Father, I ask that you would, by your spirit, help us now. Help us to find grace for our desperate situations. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.